Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. You might wonder if we're done singing, and we are not done singing, but we're changing the order of service a little bit today to fit the message that I'm bringing. Mark chapter number 11. I got my water this week just in case I choke up a little bit like I did last week. And just in case, you know what? I see the problem, guys. I am not plugged in. And that's always a helpful thing if you want this to work. Sorry about that. My fault. This time. (laughs) There you go. Thank you for that. But it's actually more often than not my fault, so. So my dad taught me when I got married, said, just remember, it's always your fault. So, okay, now we'll start over again. Mark chapter 11. Well, when I, when it was 1988, I was in elementary school and I collected baseball cards. Does anybody know who this guy is up there? Oral Oral Hershiser. Does anyone like the Dodgers in this room? Well, I figure since the Dodgers are doing so well recently, I would uh, go ahead and (laughs) bring you an illustration starting off the message today. But, you know, when you were a boy collecting baseball cards in 1988, you wanted his card. And I I think it was supposedly worth a lot of money, which back then was probably like $5. So, and I probably still have it, or my brother has it in Colorado. Uh, But I don't know if it's worth anything today. But it was... In 1988, it's the Game 5 of the World Series, and they were playing the Oakland A's. And did anyone watch this game? Okay, a couple people in here, so maybe you can have some memories of this. And Oral Hershiser was the pitcher, of course. And it was uh, in the ninth inning, and the camera zoomed in on him as he was in the dugout preparing to go up there to pitch one last time. And he was speaking to himself. And so the announcers were saying some things like, you know, what's he talking about? What's he doing under there? And what's he, what do you think he's saying? They're sort of speculating on what he's, what he's doing. Then he got up and he, he pitched and he, uh, I think the guy was the Dave Parker. Was that the last guy that, no, Tony Phillips. Sorry, Tony Phillips. He uh, struck out and the Dodgers won five to two. And after that, of course, Oral Hershiser was celebrated and he went on all these interviews. And so he went on the, the, Tonight show with Johnny Carson. So I'm really bringing back some old memories here. And, and Johnny Carson turned to him when he was interviewing him and said, what, what was it that you were saying in the dugout? You know, we were all wondering. America's wondering. What, are you, what, are, what were you saying to yourself? And he said, well, actually, I was singing. And they're like, what? You were singing? What were you singing about? And he's like, oh, no, it doesn't matter. And they're like, come on, sing it for us, sing it for us. So the whole crowd chimes in here, sing, sing, sing. And so... He says, okay. So then he starts singing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Awkward silence on the Tonight Show. (laughs) And and he's a Christian. And so he was saying that he was using it to calm himself when he was under uh, in the dugout there. Also, he was singing an old song called Rushing Wind by Keith Green, which they said is a contemporary Christian song. That I've never heard of. <laughs> Does anyone know that song? Okay. So contemporary back in the 1980s, I guess. And, and Oral Hershiser said this when he was asked about it later on. This is actually written in, um, in Sports Illustrated. 
He said, there's a line in that song in Rushing Wind. It says this, it says, Rushing wind, blow through this temple, blow out the dust within. And he said, that seems particularly appropriate at that moment to sing that. And so I was singing, praise God from whom my blessings flow, praying that song as well, singing that song. And I wanted to cleanse my mind of all the clutter in the world at that moment and block out the pressure and concentrate on the Lord. That's interesting, isn't it? So in the, in the midst of pressure, what did he choose to do? To praise God. That was a pretty neat story. Today we're going to talk about that. We're talking about praising God and, and considering who he is and what's going on in your life and in lifting your voice and praise to the Lord. We're in Mark chapter 11, verse 1. So if you look at Mark 11, verse 1, I'll read it as you follow along. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately after you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it. And if anyone says, says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt at the door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said, and they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and and he sat on it and many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Father, we enter into this message thinking about you and desiring that as our thoughts rest on you and then think about our life, the result will be that we'll praise you. We'll praise you. And so God, open our eyes this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in a series called Pray with Faith in God. And last week we looked at the prayer to God for mercy from blind Bartimaeus and We saw that a prayer of faith in God is crying out to God for mercy. And this week we're going to look at praising God for who he is. Blind Bartimaeus screamed out. He yelled, son of David, have mercy on me, me. And so he considered who God was and who Jesus was. Jesus is merciful and can show mercy. So he prayed out in in prayer and a prayer of faith to him. And God add mercy upon him. And then next we're going to look at today that we are to consider who God is. And we're to pray out. Hey, Josh, how you doing? (laughs) And we're to pray in faith faith, uh, to him in praise. And so Mark 11, 1 through 11 is our text. And this is really called many times the triumphal entry. And the idea there is that Jesus triumphantly entered into, into Jerusalem on a colt. And it was, it was similar to what a, a king would do coming into a city. And Jesus did this to fulfill the messianic prophecies about 
the king coming. However, before this event, if you look Mark uh, 1 through 10, you see that Jesus actually many times is rejecting this type of public announcement. If you go back to Mark chapter 1, and you see the leper there. Remember the leper was healed, and then Jesus said what to him? Don't go out and tell everyone. Keep it to yourself. You know, go show yourself to the priest and keep it to yourself. And, but he did that anyways. Went out and told everyone. And Jesus had to, to then retreat back and go to a desolate place. And then we see the feeding of the 5,000. And they, they are probably more like ten to 15,000 people. And there he's feeding them. And what do they want to do? They want to make him king after that. And so you see this happening. What does Jesus do? He retreats then to a desolate place. And so that's all happening through the book of Mark and through the Gospels here until we get to Mark chapter 11, and then it changes. So what changed after, or what changed in Mark chapter 11? Why did he avoid this public announcement and now he marches in as a king? Well, it's because during his earthly ministry, he was teaching people, and his main ministry was to teach and to uh, really develop his disciples. And now his ministry is to die. And he knew that once he publicly proclaimed himself as the Messiah, that his death would be imminent. And that's exactly what happens. In fact, uh, chapter 11 through chapter 16, which is the last third of the book of Mark here, the gospel of Mark, is actually the last week of his life. So he enters in as king on Sunday, and he's killed on Friday, and he rises again on Sunday morning. So look down in verse number one. You can see in verse one, it says that they drew near to Jerusalem and at the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is about 300 feet higher in elevation than Jerusalem actually um, there's a valley between the Mount of Olives and the, uh, the temple. And so you can see I circled up there, the Mount of Olives. And there's the Garden of Gethsemane. And you can see the journey that Jesus made from Bethany to the temple. And first to the Mount of Olives. And then down to the Kidron Valley, up into the temple, into Jerusalem there. And the Mount of Olives is such an important place in biblical history. It, it's such an important place for us to remember and think about because Jesus did so many things there and actually he will do one more thing there. So Jesus first he entered in and he entered in his triumphal entry. Then after this he goes out this week and he teaches the all of that discourse. So if you're in Bob Likes class, you guys are going through that right now and he, he teaches about the destruction of Jerusalem and about the future and his second coming. This is also the same place where he had his prayer and betrayal. So he went with his disciples up there and he prayed and then he was betrayed by Judas. This is also the place where he came with his disciples and he ascended into heaven. And this is also the place where he will return. In fact, the Bible says in Zechariah 14 that his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and every eye will see him. And at this spectacular event, we will return with him from heaven. And he will rule and he will reign. So if you look down in verse number two, he's on this significant mountain, the Mount of Olives. And he says to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied and on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. 
So here we see Jesus gave very specific instructions to his disciples on what they are supposed to do. They were going to get a colt. Matthew actually includes that there was the mother of the colt that was there as well. And that's probably because this was a colt that was never ridden before. It was, it was unbroken. And so he probably needed a mother there to, to calm it. It was a calming presence. But why does Jesus do all, all this? Why, I mean, why all the instructions? Why so specific? What's happening here? What's the whole point? Well, I think there's really two purposes that Jesus has for what he's doing here. And first of all, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. He's fulfilling prophecy. In fact, the book of Matthew clearly says he did this to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. And it lists those prophecies there. Second, he's presenting himself as the king, the Messiah king. In fact, you can see this in, in Zechariah 9, 9. This is a prophecy that Jesus would come. And it says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud. So that's what you're going to see as he comes into Jerusalem. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, having salvation, is, is he, humble, mounted on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Look how specific that is about what Jesus would do. And so Jesus fulfilled that prophecy coming in. Now, when you think about the prophecy of the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfilled that, it's actually astounding. This is one prophecy but there are probably over about, there's at least, I should say, at least 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. So think about that. Hundreds of years before Jesus came, men wrote down what was, what was going to happen. And actually Jesus, to the letter, fulfilled that. Not one of those was unfulfilled. It's unfathomable to think about. In fact, I was reading a study by a guy who was a mathematician. We got some mathematicians in here, some engineers. Seems like more than the average church. So I thought you might enjoy this one here. And he studied the probability that one man, Jesus Christ, could have fulfilled just eight of those 300 prophecies. So think about that. So not the 300, but just eight. What's the probability of that? Now, when we talk about probability, we're talking about the odds that something will happen. So I put some odds up there, okay? So the odds that in 2020 that you'll be struck by lightning is 7 to 10 to the, what do I have it up there? It's too small for me. Fifth power. There we go. So 1 and 700,000. So, not very likely. Okay, how about that you will be killed by lightning? Even less likely, one in two million. How about the probability that you'll be president? Not, not one we all really want. But probability is one in, in ten million. It's actually pretty bad, but actually pretty good too, I guess. But what is the probability that Jesus could fulfill eight prophecies from the Old Testament in his life. So this guy studied this. And the, the odds are. He came up with the odds being. The probability that Jesus would fulfill eight prophecies. One to times ten to the twenty-eighth power. That's one with twenty-eight zeros. In other words. It's impossible. <laughs> it could happen. Right? It's impossible. But he did it. He did it. Now how is it possible that he could do that? Well. It was all planned from before time. And actually he is omniscient. He is sovereign, so he knows all, and he oversees all. And that's what you really see here in this passage. How did Jesus know that the colt and its mother would be in that town? I mean, it's clear as you look at this passage that it was not prearranged. I mean, he's saying, here's the instructions you give to the person when they're surprised you're taking their colt, right? 
So it wasn't prearranged. He's saying, like, this is where it's going to be, and this is what's going to happen. And Jesus just has this confidence, like, hey, guys, go do that. This is what's going to happen next. Because why? Because he can, or how can he do that? Because he's sovereign over all. Like, he says, oh, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and I know this is going to happen. Because he's sovereign, he's omniscient, he knows everything. And so Jesus' foreknowledge and his sovereignty were on display here. And observe in verse 7 how his disciples responded. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And, and so the disciples obey, and then the people praise. And many spread their cloaks on the ground, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. So as Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem, the crowd saw him, and they respond with this spontaneous praise and and really honoring him as their king. Remember, there was about 2 million people in Jerusalem during the time of Passover. That was not typically how many were there. And this, this is a large crowd of people that are packed into this small city. And so you think about it, there's hundreds, there's thousands of people that are coming in and coming out of the city. So the, the streets would have been lined here with people. And Jesus gets on a colt and goes down from the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley, up to the city of Jerusalem. And he comes through the gate called the Eastern Gate. It's the gate also known as the Gate Beautiful in, in Acts chapter 3. And so I, get a, I give a modern-day picture of there what Jerusalem looks like. So right here, you're actually standing on the Mount of Olives, and then you're looking down to the Kidron Valley, and then you see that's a gate right there. Now, does anyone notice anything odd about that gate? Yeah, it's shut. You can't get in it. And it's actually a very interesting history on that gate. So I'm just going to give you a quick history. In 810, that's 800 years after Jesus was on the earth, 810, it was closed by Muslims. And so the Muslims had taken over the city, conquered it. They closed that gate. Then the Crusaders opened it back up in 1102. Then the Muslims came back in under the Ottoman Sultan. uh, And he rebuilt the gate. With the, with the city uh, walls as well. And then in 1541, he walled that gate back up. And to this day, that gate remains walled up. And it's very fascinating when you think about it, the significance of this. The reason that they did that, the reason the Muslims did that, was to prevent the possible future Jewish Messiah from entering into that gate. In fact, right in front of that gate are a bunch of graves of people who are Muslim, and they did that so that the Messiah would have to come over that gate. And then on this, this all those grave sites down there, grave sites down there are all Jewish, and they're all buried there and hope that they can be there the first one when the Messiah comes back. So it's very interesting just to think about it's kind of the, even the battle that's taking place. Even today, it's, it's a battle. Orthodox Jews, they are looking for the Messiah to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies by coming through that gate right there. And the Muslims attempted to thwart the Messiah's plans by putting 16 feet of rock from one side to the other side of that gate, that, thinking that will stop the Messiah from coming through it. And that's been that way for 500 years. But here's the crazy thing. The Messiah already went through that gate, right? That's what Mark chapter 11 is about. He goes through on the colt and it fulfills the prophecies of Ezekiel and of Zechariah. So in verse number eight, he says, many spread their cloaks on the ground and some others spread leafy branches. So, so what are they doing here? Why are they throwing their coats on the ground? 
Well, that was, that was a, a symbol that you were submitting to that person. So if you looked in 2 Kings chapter 9, there you see a, a king of Israel is, is raised up and he comes in. What do they do? They take their coats off and they throw it on the ground and he walks on that. And the idea is we're going to submit to this person. We're going to show homage, homage to this person, honor to them. So the crowds do this to Jesus as he rides this colt. And then they sing a song. And you say, well, I don't, it says it, they shouted in there. So why, where do I come up with that? Well, what they sh- were shouting was a song. It was Psalm 118, the passage that we read this morning together. And so they sang this together as Jesus came in. In fact, just turn over there one more time to Psalm 118 in the Old Testament, Psalm 118. This is part of the Hallel, which was sung by the Jewish people. So they actually naturally sang this on this day. That's because the Paschal lamb would also be marched down from the fields, which were on the right-hand side of this picture up there, which were the Levitical fields where the, the sheep would have been. They would have picked out a, one of the lambs, and they would have brought it down and up and through that gate as well. And so the people would have sung out to the Lord, and they would have sung the, the Hallel, which is Psalm 118 is a part of. And they would have shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they apply this to Jesus, which is just remarkable. And so look at verse 19. We're not going to read the whole thing. But as I read this, I want you to consider, think about Jesus is on this colt. He's coming down. People, thousands of people are surrounding him. They're throwing their coats down and branches down. They're singing this and they're applying this to Jesus. And just think about what Jesus is thinking about as he hears these words applied to himself. And he knows it is about himself. Verse 19 says, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. And who was the righteous one? It was Jesus. I thank you that I have, that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone, and who's the stone? Jesus, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. He's going to go in the temple that week and talk about that, actually preach on that. Hey guys, you just sung about it a couple of days ago. And now... This is me. I'm the, I'm the cornerstone. Uh, in verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in his eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in us. And then verse 25 is what Mark quotes here that they sing. Save us or Hosanna, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord, the temple. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords. Now think about that as that's being sung. <laughs> like who's the one that's going to be bound on Friday up to the horns of the altar? So could you go back to Mark chapter 11? What you see here is this is what was sung to Jesus as he comes in. And how much do the people understand Probably not very much, but they did recognize this, that there was something special about this guy, and they were recognizing him as the potential Messiah. Messiah, And the word Hosanna is the transliteration of the Hebrew word, which means, save us, we pray. So there was this cry of, like, save us, and the hope that he was some kind of Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this, this praise to God for Jesus. And then look at verse 10 of Mark chapter 11. They actually add something. Maybe it was a, a chorus someone 
yelled out. They all started singing it together because somehow they sung it in unison. Verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. So you don't see this verse actually in Psalm 118. So this was some kind of spontaneous song. They just started singing this part of the, of the psalm and they added this into it. What an astounding declaration that Jesus is the king that has come in the line of David who will establish the kingdom of God. It's amazing how, how the Lord orchestrated all that to come together. And what an amazing picture of worship, of praise to the one who deserves to be worshipped. Last week we saw blind Bartimaeus, right? He cries out for mercy. And here we see a crowd of people who are crying out in praise to God. And do you realize that praising God is actually a prayer of faith? So we saw that with blind Bartimaeus, that he cried out in faith to God. But also when we praise God, we actually are praising him or we're praying with faith in him. So you think about what blind Bartimaeus did is he actually thought about the fact that Jesus was a God of mercy. He's merciful. And so he cried out to him to have that mercy applied to him. And then when we praise God, we're thinking about who God is. And then we're exalting him by faith saying, we believe this is true and this affects me. And so therefore I praise you in this way. So praise to God is actually a prayer of faith in God based upon who he is. Now, I got my water up here, and I did that because last week my throat was kind of hurting, and I, I couldn't figure out why. And then I think I figured it out yesterday when I was at the soccer game for my son, and I'm screaming, you know, <laughs> at, you know, good job, you know, or sometimes start running, you know, or whatever, trying to give instructions. And, and uh, but soccer games are kind of fun to watch for kids. You know, you have the five-year-olds that are all like the little bees that are around the ball, you know, everywhere, and you All these parents are shouting at their kids and also the refs, which doesn't make any sense because it's a kid's game. It's not the MO. It's not the uh, professional MLS, you know, but, but you think, you think about these kids out there and you hear these parents. One of the things, as I was just thinking my message, I was listening to these parents and they're, they're all shouting praise. I mean, there's some that aren't, but generally most parents are trying to encourage their kids. You know, you know, the kid goes down and he, he misses it by a mile and they say, good effort, you know? If I had a dollar for every time I heard E for effort, you know, but it's a good effort. At least you tried, you know, (laughs) you hustled out there. And so these parents are praising their kids, right? Praise doesn't make sense unless it's real, unless it's true. And so they try to find something that's true, right? And so you try to encourage your kids in that way, but also you're recognizing, I remember there was a girl yesterday and she did this amazing move. She's probably like eight or nine years old and she stopped and turned the ball and kicked it. And I was like, and I just spontaneously went, wow, that was amazing. And she turned to me and goes like that. Okay. She was on the other team too. So like you you did a good job. But when we see something amazing, we do have that reaction of, of praise. Well, that's great. Sometimes it's just in her head. Sometimes we blurt it right out. Sometimes we should keep our mouth shut. Right. But if it's to God, we should see the truth of God, how that applies to us. And then we, we respond in praise to him. So fundamental to praise is a correct view of who God is. You know, sometimes people have the idea. It's like, well, and you see this at Bible studies sometimes, or I should say, uh, my opinion studies, you know, where people say to me, God is this, you know, I'm so thankful for that. And it's like, who, who cares what God is to you? Like, 
Who is he actually, right? What does the word say? So fundamental to praise is we must have a correct view of God. So in this passage, who is God? Well, Jesus is God. And who is Jesus in this passage? Well, we see his foreknowledge. We see his wisdom. We see his sovereignty. The crowds recognize his authority, the hope that he would be the king that would save them. They say, Hosanna in the highest. They acknowledge his right to rule as the king of Israel. So it's important for us to praise God based upon the reality of who God is. And therefore, we must remember that we cannot truly, we cannot truly know who God is without the revelation of God's word. Right? Fundamental to praise as well is that we must know who God is, but also that comes from the knowledge of his word. So the prayer of faith that praises God for who he is must be based upon the revelation of the scriptures, since it's the revelation of himself. So when you praise God in your prayers, it's helpful. I, I just believe it's helpful for us to make sure that we have an open Bible. They're actually recognizing who he is. I don't know if you've ever been in a room with people and you say, hey, let's praise God for things. And, and everyone can think about the things around. Them. Oh, I praise God for a house I'm living in. And I praise God for the life I have. But but it's so helpful to actually go to the scriptures and say, who is God? I thank God that he is he's merciful. I praise God that he is he's holy. And so going to the scriptures and actually understanding who God is in reality, that is true praise. And so when we praise God in our service here, I, one of the things I really want to do as a pastor is make sure that the word of God saturates every part of our service. That's why I say my, my, my goal is that every part is actually about the word of God. So we pray the word. So Pastor Roger prayed this morning. And the idea is, you, as you hear him praying even for other people, he's applying who God is from the word of God to those situations. We give to support the word. So we have those boxes in the back. And, and many of you are sacrificially giving. Why? It's to support the word of God as it's proclaimed here and as it goes out to the world. We show the word in baptism. And so the idea of baptism, you're, you're picturing what Jesus has done for us, which is proclaimed in the word of God that he died and was buried and res- resurrected. We remember it in the Lord's table, what Jesus has done for us. We, we preach the word. It's what I'm doing right now. And when we sing, we actually, do you realize we're actually singing the word of God, sometimes word for word, and sometimes the ideas, the, the truths found in the word of God. So what I love about the the triumphal entry is that it's a song from God's word, Psalm 118. So when we sing as a church, one of the things I, I really want us to do as a church when we plan is to make sure that it's filled with Bible truth. So we look through the songs and we want to be very discerning about that. And singing as a church is not optional for us. Some people might wonder, well, why, why, do you get, why do we do that? Like, why is this something we do every week? Well, actually, you realize that singing as a church is commanded. We're actually commanded by God to come together as a church and sing. Ephesians 5, 19 says that we are to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. The idea is it comes from your heart. It comes from who you truly are. And we're to address one another. We're to sing to one another. And so the idea is that we are to obey God by singing congregationally. So that's why I'm against performance-based music. 
or you have a person that it's all about them, and it's not necessarily bad to go to those kind of things and watch that and have that, but it's like we want to make sure that's central to our music here. It's actually us addressing one another in song. So when you think about singing, we sing two songs. We're going to sing some more. When you think about singing, think about what was going on in your heart when you were singing. You know, are, you, are you reflecting upon the Lord? <clears throat> are you thinking about your life and, and the words on the screen and how, who God is and how that affects your personal life? You know, are you praising God from your heart? Are you obeying the Lord? I guess even one of it, simply, just are you obeying the Lord by singing, right? And sometimes you take a break, right, from your voice. I had to do that sometimes, so. But the idea is that we are obeying the Lord together with that. And we are to sing the word of God. And that praise of song, though, really is a response to the word. Think about this passage right here in Colossians 3.16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So think about that. The word of Christ is dwelling in you. There's teaching. There's admonition to one another. And then what is the result of that? What comes after that? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. So, and it just makes sense, right? If God is working in your heart through the word of God, and you're, and you're, then therefore you're going to respond to the word of God with what? With song. And you're going to sing the word. And so here's the idea is that let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and then we are to sing psalms together. A lot of people have a philosophy of music that's kind of like, you know, uh, I sing so I can get the feeling of God, right? There's a lot of musicians out there, and a lot of churches actually, that are just trying to create this feeling. Like, let's, let's gather around and just, just feel the God's presence. And they try to create that with music. So their philosophy of music really comes down to is the purpose of it is to create an atmosphere. Some people even say it like this, that the, the song service is, is the purpose of the song service is to prepare your heart for the preaching. See, I think both those ideas are completely wrong. They're not actually accurate. Like, you should actually come into the service with your heart already prepared, engaged with the Lord, right? And, and actually, we're not trying to create an atmosphere. The atmosphere, or I should say the feeling, comes as a result from your worship of God. Music and, and praise and song is actually a response to the word of God. The word of Christ dwells in you and therefore you respond. So you have, you have uh, Paul and you have Silas. They're in prison. They've just been beaten. Their backs are bleeding. They're in stocks. Kind of a really bad atmosphere, right, for singing. But what do they do? They rejoice in song. Well, how is that possible? The word of Christ was dwelling richly in them. And how do they respond even in a difficult situation? They sang to the Lord. And, and, and I, again, I just kind of want to come back to this idea that the, the modern Christian uh, music movement puts a lot of emphasis on the mood and, and the feeling. And a lot of musicians put a lot of effort into creating that feeling. And kind of like the idea sometimes is that that's the goal. Like if you just get to that place where you just feel God's presence, then you got there. And it's just not true. Singing, like any other types of obedience, actually starts with the word of God. Believing it by faith, which follows the, the feelings, if you want to say it that way. So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. And we can't and we shouldn't f- try to flip that around. And I think about it like this. I taught Bob Likes class this morning. Talked about another topic in there. But 
when we think about obedience in the scripture, it's, it's fact first, it's faith next, and then it's feeling. It's the idea is that the facts are, are the words of God, the truth of God. So we go to Jesus Christ in the word and we say, what is, who is he really? What has he really done for us? And then we have faith. We say, I believe that. I believe that. And we have faith by, by, as we believe it and we teach it, we apply it. And, and yes, we sing it. We sing it. We're like, yeah, I believe that. I'm going to sing that out because I believe that with all my heart. And you know what follows after that? That's when the feelings come. Like if you try to flip that around and be like, okay, I've got, we got to create these feelings. I got to get these feelings. You're never going to get there. Or you're going to have it momentarily. It's going to be like this, like, I got it, I got it. And then once all the music fades, it's like, oh, I don't, I don't have the feeling anymore. That's terrible. You've got it all backwards is why. You got to go to the word, believe the word, sing the word. And then the result of that is the Lord fills your heart with his peace and his joy. So a biblical view of music sees the word as the primary way to engage God. And, and the idea is that we have a relationship with him as he speaks to us through the word of God. And songs are a way to respond to the word of God in our hearts. I was at a, a prayer breakfast once, and a group was up there singing. And, and where there was one song they were singing, and I was really, really trying to understand what it was saying, the words of the song. And, I, and it was a lot of great adjectives. Very cute how it was like rhyming and stuff, but I, I couldn't figure out what it was saying. And it was a Christian song, and I just concluded in the end of the day, that was the most worthless song I've ever heard in my life. Because it doesn't actually, if I can't engage in actually what the truth of God's word is, then it's, it's no point. I don't care how good it makes me feel. Like that's not truly a Christian song for worship. And so it's so important for us to make sure we have a right, a correct approach as we consider worship songs. So it goes for, honestly, for young people, it goes for new songs. Like you get a new, you're like, oh, that song makes you feel really good. What? What about it? I don't know. It just makes me feel good. And honestly, for us, I don't know, I guess us, but some older people, it goes the same way for songs you like. Oh, I, I really like that song. Why is it? Oh, it just makes me remember when I was growing up. So feelings aren't the reason we determine what we sing, right? It should be the truth of God's word. And of course, there's, there's power in that. And there's power how it connects to our lives. But it's important for us to remember that singing is a response to the word of God. And there's different styles, so that's okay. But it's not about the feeling. It's about believing. It's about believing. And so the word says this, 1 Corinthians 14, 15. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but also will pray with my mind also. And then he talks about singing. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. So our minds must take the truth of who God is from the word of God and apply that in praise to God. Do you, ever, do you have a song or do you, have you ever had a song that just really hits you? I mean, even a secular song where you're like, oh, that just really, like it just pierces your soul. And maybe you even have a, me- a song that you have fond memories of that, that, uh, that really uh, emotionally kind of drives you, brings back some memories or maybe... You know, maybe you're in love with someone and you think about that song and that was the, that was your song, right? Uh, I think what you see there, the power behind that music and that song is that there's, there's a truth there. There's a reality in your life. Maybe if you're in love with someone, right, you have that love. And then you hear the, the truth in that song that, you know, I, I love this person. I'm going to give my whole heart to them or whatever. And then, and you apply that with singing. And so you're kind of engaging in that way. And that's kind of the idea where you think, think of, of Christian music as well. 
there, there's some, there can be songs sometimes that can really buttress what God is teaching you in his word. But what I would say is this, is when God is working in your heart and the, with the word of God, when it's coming in you and you're really, you're really understanding it, you're applying it, and you're rejoicing in it, the natural response is singing, right? And there's going to be some songs that you're going to love. Why is that? Because of what Christ is doing. Think about when we made the decision to leave the church we were at and seek God by faith and step out by faith. There was a song that we sang as a family in front of the whole congregation. It was a really hard one to get through. And it was, a Lord, I need you. And it's a modern song. And it says, Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. And honestly, at that moment, I was about to fall apart. Standing in front of all those people, seeing people I'd pastored and loved for many years. But you're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. And I think I, I turned to Dana. I remember looking at her and there's, seeing tears in her eyes and my eyes and being like, oh, Lord, how I need you. You know what that came from? It came from as we were studying the word and God was working our heart through the word of God and all those thoughts in our head and what was going on in our life. And it was like, and this song was just a way to express that and worship to the Lord. Music, is, it can be so powerful. It's just an amazing gift that God has given to us as humans to be able to express praise and really even prayers to our Lord. And I would ask this question, what is singing like to you? Now, is it dry to you? Maybe you come in here and you're like, oh, man, it's, it's don't really get engaged very much when we sing songs. So singing is just so dry. And I guess let me throw this out. It could be because the word is dry to you. When you hear about God's faithfulness, you might think, oh, I don't know. That song doesn't make me feel very good. Like if you recognize God's faithful to you, it should, Right? If you're, if you're in God's word, you're like, God, you are so faithful. I fail you all the time, but you're so faithful. Great is your faithfulness every morning, right? So when we, when we understand the truth and we're applying it to our life, it really can enrich our singing, it does. And when we believe and apply it to our lives, we can't help but sing and our, our voices cry out to him. I guess I think about it this way. Maybe you're in here and you're without Christ. You don't have a relationship with the Lord and Maybe you've heard the gospel. You've maybe even come to services here before. So you've heard the gospel, and you've heard, you know, you're, we're all sinners, and we deserve to be punished for our sin. And maybe that even strikes you a little bit, like, oh, man, I, I do feel the guilt of my sin. And, and you, you've even heard that Jesus is the Lord and Savior, and he's, he came to live the life you could never live and die in your place and be resurrected. And you thought, you know what, I, maybe I should give my life to that. Maybe I should believe that. And the, the Spirit of God is convicting you. And there sometimes can be songs that maybe really touch your heart and be like, you know what? I need that. I need that. And actually, I would encourage you as we sing the next couple of songs, like to think about the words we're singing. And maybe if you need to come to Christ, that this is the song that you can say, you know what, Lord, I've heard the word. I know what I need to do. I'm coming to you now. My grandmother's name was Inez. She died a number of years ago. And she married, her first husband she married was named Floyd. And she was a senior in high school, and he was a senior in high school, and he was a tall, brown-haired, brown-eyed guy, and they were living in Arkansas, and so it had the nice southern drawl. And she saw him and thought, oh, he's a really cute guy. So she sat behind him in math class, and 
she was pretty good at math, which that didn't pass on for some reason. But anyways, she was really good at math class, and he was struggling with a problem. So he, she leaned forward and said, hey, can I help you with a problem? And he said, oh, sure. And so he, she went up and sat next to him, and, and she helped him, right, with his math. And, uh, and was, as was common back then, it was her senior year, so she was thinking, maybe this is the guy I'm going to marry. So next year, sure enough, they got married right out of high school. And then they got pregnant within the first year of marriage. So and at, in her mind, this is the I, time, you know, was like, this is great. This is wonderful. I'm marrying the guy of my dreams. I'm going to have a baby. You know, my husband now has a job. And we're just we're living the life that we wanted to live. And she grew up in a Christian home. And so she's like, you know, God loves me. And I go to church. And so that's all really good and grand until... In that first year of marriage, Floyd began to get sick. And he started coughing. He was very weak. He went to the doctor, and they said, you know what? You need to go to the Ozark Mountains, and you need to go to a TB center, tuberculosis center. And back then, they had these places in the mountains where, you know, hundreds of people would live and basically go there to die from tuberculosis. It was deadly. It was contagious. And so they had to go up there. That's how they dealt with it at that time. So... He went, and she said goodbye to him, recognizing that's probably the last time she's going to be able to see him. So, you know, first year into the marriage, she's young, she has a baby, you know, what's she going to do? And so he went to this sanitarium and, and you know, basically went up there to die, and eventually he did so, he died. But as he was up there, there was a pastor that came by once and sat down with him, and he was a retired pastor, and so he would just go visit these places and give people the gospel, and he went by this Floyd's bed one day, and Floyd was laying there, and he opened his Bible up and shared the gospel with him, and Floyd came to Christ. So what did he think he did right after that? Well, he started writing her letters, or they wrote every day anyways, and he started writing her letters, and so he wrote a letter that you know, said, I love you, but I want you to know that you're a sinner and you need Jesus. And she was greatly offended. She got that letter, and she thought, oh, I'm in love with you, but that's over the top. I am not a sinner. And she's a good old Southern girl. So she'd be like, you know, so she, had, and if you, if you knew my grandma, she was, you know, she's like, I am not one of those scants on the street. You know, that's how she would say it, you know? And she was, so she said, you know, I'm not like that. And so she'd write him back and say, you know, I'm, you know, I, that's not very nice, but you know, she wanted to be kind to him because she knew he was dying. And, and, but the more, uh, he wrote, the more he kept just saying, like, you need to be saved, you need to be saved and, and encourage you go read the Bible. So she started reading the Bible and, and she started trying to avoid places that made her feel bad. She started feeling worse and worse as she read the Bible and recognizing that something was actually wrong with her. Then one night she got a letter from him and it said, hey, I know there's a pastor that's in town and he's preaching a week of services and I want you to go and listen to him preach the gospel. She said, well, you know, he is my husband, so I probably should do what he says. And so she went ahead and went to the, the service and sat in the back and this guy preached the gospel very clear. And she heard it, and she heard the fact that Jesus died for her on the cross, and she went, oh, something, something's right about that. And she knew she needed it, but she said, I'm, I'm a proud woman. Like, I'm a good woman. I'm not going to do this in front of all these people. So she went home. But the next day, she said, you know, I think I'm just going to go back and see. And so she went back, and she went a couple nights. And one night, she sat there, and as she was thinking about the word that was preached the night before, and as she was thinking about her need for Christ, her, she was overwhelmed by the guilt of her sin. And the congregation started singing this song, Rock of Ages. Cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse 
me from its guilt and power. And so she, she just pictured Christ on the cross and him dying for her and him looking at her in love. And she's like, I, and she recognized, I need to come to Christ. But she sat in her seat there as the congregation was sitting, she sat and she said, I'm not going to do this. I'm, I'm not going to do this. I, I'm a good person. And then they started singing the next verse. Not for, not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All could never sin erase. Thou must save and save by grace. She got up. She said, I need to be saved. And during the song, she came down. <laughs> and the pastor's like, what's going on? He went up and he greeted her and she sat down. And that night she became a believer in Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is the word of God was working in her heart already, right? Was the song what was used to, to give her the gospel to be saved? Well, definitely it told truth in there. But really the song was a response for her, right? She had already heard the gospel and she recognized that she needed Christ. And if you're in here without Christ, listen, would you respond to the gospel truth? Respond to the gospel truth. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Vile I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. She sat there and listened to those words, and she bowed her head, and she became a believer in Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? And my life has been changed because of that, because my mom became a believer when she was born eventually, and um, she married a Christian man, and, and here I am today. So thankful for the fact that we have God's word, and we can praise him in song. We should praise God. By faith, thinking about who he is. Now, I ordered the service a little different today because I want us to actually end with three songs. So we can actually have the last part of our service be singing and allow us to think about what we learned in the word today and sing it with all of our hearts. Would you bow your heads with me as I pray and have the musicians come up and we're going to sing three more songs to the Lord. Father, I think about anyone in this service here that is without Christ. I pray for them. I pray they'll come to you today. I pray for us as believers. May we take seriously responsibility we have to consider you and to praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.